This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today is a special episode because we actually booked this guest before we found out and knew that the governor of the great state of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, was flying across country to meet with Joe Biden for her interview to be the next vice president of the United States. This is one of my good friends today who I appreciate. He, along with Mandela Barnes, shout out Mandela, are the two youngest black elected statewide officials in the United States. The person that we have today on the Bakari Sellers podcast is none other than Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. He's so dope. I mean, this this episode, he, he's brilliant, a great grasp of issues. Um, and as I tell everyone, um, Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist is not the future. He's the right now. But, you know, before we get into this episode, we always do our best here on this show to make sure that our listeners are empowered in part by making sense of an otherwise noisy news environment that often invests more in controversy than in informing you. And with less than 100 days until this next election in November, I encourage every listener and their families and friends to begin to develop their plan for voting right now. And particularly, I want to talk to you about what's happening with the United States Postal Service. See, many people don't think this is a sexy issue, but I want you to understand the steps that this president is taking to intentionally undermine intentionally undermine this November's election, which will be the largest vote-by-mail operation in the history of this country. If you haven't been following the president's Twitter rants lately, thank God he's blocked me, but I do see them occasionally. He has been on a crusade to undermine our confidence in voting by mail, but why is he doing that? Let's talk about that first. He's doing it because every public and internal poll he sees shows him losing and losing badly. So the only way he wins is if the president and the Republicans keep people from voting. Just think back to Scott Walker. Think to Brian Kemp. An estimate suggests that up to 80% of Americans may vote by mail this fall. 
Now, you all may not realize this, but the president actually controls the United States Postal Service through a board of governors that he appoints. And that board of governors and that board of Trump appointees appoints the postmaster general. This board of Trump appointees have appointed as our postmaster general, Louis DeJoy. What is his claim to fame? What does he do? What's his backing to show that he should be over the United States Postal Service? Well, he's a major Trump donor. For good measure, the chairman of the Postal Service's Board of Governors is Robert M. Duncan, a former chairman of the Republican National Committee and, you guessed it, a major Trump donor. So before we go any further, the three people that will run the Postal Service and manage this election are Donald Trump, Louis DeJoy, and Robert Duncan, three Republicans that want to see Donald Trump win. Now, exactly how will Donald Trump try to undermine the election by undermining the Postal Service? First, he has threatened to veto any coronavirus-related legislation that would fund the Postal Service, which is looking at an $8.8 billion funding gap. Second, in DeJoy's first month and a half in the job at the Postal Service, he has slashed overtime for postal workers, all while thousands of mail carriers have had to take time off due to contracting the coronavirus. So we have fewer people actually deliver the mail. Third, they've established a new policy to hold mail until the following day if a distribution center is running late, which, of course, they're running late because they have less money in general, less money for overtime, and fewer people working, delaying our mail. Finally, just this past Friday, Trump's boy de joy issued a, quote, reorganization plan removing two senior executives overseeing the day-to-day operations of the Postal Service and moving another 23 top Postal Service execs with decades of experience effectively centralizing even more power over the Postal Service to DeJoy and ultimately to Donald Trump. So laying out all of that, you got to ask yourself, so what do we do? First, go to usvotefoundation.org. That's usvotefoundation.org. To see when your state will begin early voting and when you can request an absentee ballot and when, this is important, and when you have to mail your ballot in to be counted. Second, if you can vote early and in person, take your mask with you. With the Postal Service as it is, if you feel safe voting in person, vote early and in person if your state allows it. Just go ahead and get it done. We need as many votes against Donald Trump counted on Election Day, and in-person early votes are often the first votes counted. It also reduces lines for Election Day if we vote early and reduces the burden on the Postal Service. So for those of us in red states in particular, the shenanigans happen on E-Day. So vote in person early and take your mask. If you can't vote in person early or you don't feel safe voting in person, vote by mail. But request your absentee ballot at the earliest date possible and return it the earliest date possible. Why? The closer we get to Election Day, the more likely it is that your ballot could be delayed. Most states, and listen closely, most states require that ballots be postmarked no later than Election Day. But if the mail is delayed, which it will be because of Trump, you run the risk of missing the deadline even if you sent it in time because delays with the Postal Service will happen. And if you absolutely must, wear a mask and vote on Election Day. 
be safe, but let's also be smart because the fix is in and we only lose to Trump this November if we don't vote. Let's make sure we do our part and give him as few opportunities as possible to stop us. Now, let's get to another great episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast with my really good friend, superb superstar, the individual who is the lieutenant governor from the great state of Michigan, Garland Gilchrist. It is an honor today to be joined by Garland Gilchrist, the lieutenant governor of the great state of Michigan. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. I know you're busy uh, running an entire state during COVID and a depression, but just thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Bakari, it's my pleasure to be here with you, brother. Uh, I got to tell you, I feel a certain connection because I don't know if I ever told you, but I got married in South Carolina. Where? Where'd you get married? Oh, I got married in West Ashley. So my wife, uh, her people go about seven generations deep in Charleston. And so I got married actually in her grandma's uh, backyard in West Ashley. And, uh, <laughs> well, listen, you, you, can't, you can't mess this one up, man. You got a good one on your hands right there. That's what that means. Well, look, no doubt. look let, talk to me about your career. You went from software engineering to politics. How do you go from Microsoft to Lansing? Yeah, my mother thought it was crazy uh, when it happened. <laughs> but, but I mean, here it is. So, you know. I grew up, I was born in Detroit, and uh, my grandma, you know, wanted her baby to have a computer. And so she got me a computer when I was five. I was the first kid on the block to get a computer. And I fell in love with that thing, man. And my parents let it really be mine. Let me do whatever I wanted, take it apart and put it together and all kinds of things. And so that made me fall in love with technology at a very young age. So I went all the way through college at the University of Michigan to become a software developer. And after that, I, I went and was a professional software developer at Microsoft for four years. I helped, you know, work on SharePoint, which was the fat is still the fastest growing business in the history of the company. I helped to grow that business, you know, zero to a billion dollars in nine months. I was on a performance engineering team there. So really uh, putting in that work. But, you know, what was important is when I was in college at Michigan, um, I was there when our admissions policies, both in the undergrad school and the law school, were challenged in terms mm-hmm. of the use of race as a factor. And so as a student, that's how I became a student organizer. So like I saw my parents involved in the community, you know, my, they were the head of the neighborhood association and all that when I was growing up. So I was like the four-year-old handing out water at oh, community yeah. meetings. Like I, that I, was you, me. you looking at, yeah, you looking at yeah. ones that's just like that. So I understand that. <laughs> right. But um, so in college though, I really got able to be a student organizer and helping organize buses to go to DC and dealing with the young Americans for freedom on campus, doing racist stuff like affirmative action, bake sales and all these kind of things. And I ran an organization for black men called Heads on campus, which is really just about black men getting together every Monday and talking about whatever was on your mind. It was a support and survival system for us on campus. And so when I went out to Seattle, I was having a great time professionally, but I wanted to have those same kind of conversations I was having in college in Heads. So I started a blog in 2005, in November, called The Super Spade, Black Thought at the Highest Level, based on the, the uh, Muhammad Ali quote. The spades got to be super spades, right? And so I started talking about politics back in 05 online. There weren't a lot of us doing that back then. And it was through that blog and being able to build relationships. That's when I met Van Jones back in 2006, right after, you know, uh, Hurricane Katrina. And uh, they started Color of Change, him and James Rucker. And met a lot of other uh, sort of online activists, guys like Veratunde Thurston and Shel Mm -hmm. Conti and these kind of folks. And so they were the first people I met who, like, worked in politics as their real job. Like they got health insurance, like working in politics. I never knew anybody who did that. 
And so it opened me up to this whole new world of possibility. So through that network I got from my website, I started getting involved in some campaigns. So I started training political folks on how to like build websites and stuff like that because I knew how to do that. Mm-hmm. And it ultimately led to me volunteering on the Obama campaign in 08 out in um, Seattle where I was living. And I went in as a regular campaign volunteer. They gave me a call sheet, call all these people. Oh, yeah. And some campaign organizer was like, maybe we should ask these guys some questions. So they, they come up to me and they're like, oh, you know how to do stuff. So, <laughs> that, so that led to me back in 08. I ended up running social media for Washington State. Like I, I did like the MySpace page and the, the Friendster MySpace page, Friendster, early oh my. Facebook, early. <laughs> t- like I, I did that stuff for Washington State, right? And then I also got a chance to be on the team to help build the original text messaging program for the OA campaign. Mm. And so I saw that and was like, man, I can use my technology to connect people to political power. This is a match made in heaven. So that led to me being uh, wanting to change my life and change my career. So the week before I got married to my wife, who I'm still married to, uh, the week before we got married, though, I quit my job at Microsoft. <laughs> and, and we moved across country to D.C. I got involved in progressive politics, worked at the Center for Community Change for two years as their director of new media, got trained in being a community organizer, economic, social, racial justice, voting rights, you name it. Went to moveon.org for three years as national campaign director. After that, I got to run campaigns all over the country, including uh, the biggest volunteer program for Obama's reelection outside of labor and the campaign itself for moveon.org. And that was great, but I wasn't satisfied because I'm a Detroit kid. I'm a Detroit boy and I wanted to go home. You know, um, my city's been through a lot. Yes. And, you know, I wanted to be part of not only being part of the defining the, the future, but also making sure that everybody had a chance to play a role in that future and that black folks had a chance to play a role in that future. So in 2014, my twins who were born on my birthday in 2013, we got them in the Chevy. We drove from D.C. to Detroit, moved home to the west side of Detroit, where I live right now. Started working for city government. I actually got out of politics, was a, was a technocrat. I was doing like super mundane technology projects, fixing fire hydrants. I made an app about non-emergency service requests, like very, very like in the weeds and mm-hmm. dirt of how you govern and how you build right. trust and how people build trust in government because it works for you, you know? So I did that for two and a half years, was the happiest person in Detroit. I had my babies back home. I was working for the city, touching every person in the city. It was great. And then 2016 happened. And 2016 happened. Trump wins Michigan by 10,704 votes. And I, like so many others, are like, maybe there is more that I need to be doing because there are 11,000 more votes on the west side of Detroit. I mean, there's 11,000 votes in some Detroit churches. But right. <laughs> right. So, exactly. So, so I was encouraged to run to be the election administrator in Detroit, actually, in 2017. I ran to be the Detroit city clerk. And um, I was I took on a three term incumbent as a who does this guy think he is? He ain't connected to anybody politically in Michigan. You know, are you crazy running citywide in Detroit? But uh, I stepped up. I thought we could do it. We built this amazing team of volunteers. And um, but I lost. We came within fourteen. Came within, came within man, fourteen hundred. I didn't, I didn't expect the story to end like that, man. I was. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me about the party y'all had at inauguration no. or something. Okay, hey, look, we we had a big party. We had a real big party, but uh, <laughs> but I lost, and and so I lost by fourteen hundred votes to a three term incumbent who also counted the votes in that election. So I'm going to let you mm-hmm. think about that. No, I already know but, what that um, is. <laughs> but that's called, that's called good election strategy. That's that Brian. <laughs> that's that Brian Kemp. Election strategy. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We're sitting on a massive scale, right? So yeah. nevertheless, so at, during that campaign, 
I met a lot of people in politics and, and in the movement here in Michigan. And, you know, we, like I said, we did something nobody saw coming. And uh, one of the people I met in that process was Gretchen Whitmer. Um, yeah. We met on Labor Day of 2017 when she was campaigning for governor. I was campaigning for city clerk. And that's when we met. We just kind of started talking casually. But after my race, um, you know, she reached out to me so we could talk just because she was someone who was trying to build her name recognition in Detroit. And I was somebody who in a matter of six months got 50,000 people to vote for me from not knowing who I was. So we talked about kind of strategy wise. And we just kind of, you know, struck up a relationship. And I didn't realize that six months later, seven months later, uh, she would ask me to join her as her partner and running mate to be the next lieutenant governor of the state of Michigan. And well, so uh, story, now we here. Congratulations. <laughs> I know. Hey, that's, that's, but I mean, that's how God works. It's amazing because, you know, sometimes you, you have victories even through what looks to be defeat. So that's a, I mean, that's an amazing story of perseverance and everything else. Oh, it's a, it's a blessing. I am the poster child for God closing the door and opening a window, you know? And, yeah. and so it's, yeah, I feel like, I have a responsibility to use this service well. And I know you, you know, as a trailblazer yourself, you know, when you were in the legislature and I know you ran for that office, Lieutenant Governor, so you I, know what I, the I don't potential wanna, of it I, is. I don't even want to talk about it, man. I, I'm still <laughs> hurt over that. But I'm happy to see you. I'm happy to see you in that job because it is a great deal of potential. And, and being an African-American statewide official is just a, of great import. I want to talk to you about something specific, though, because Michigan seems to be one of the few states that has had a handle on its COVID cases due in large part to the leadership of both you and Governor Whitmer. What do you think Michigan did that other states aren't doing? I think there's two big elements of it. So, so the first is, I mean, we have the benefit of having some of the best like public health professionals and scientists in the world available to us through the University of Michigan, my, my alma mater. No, no uh, bias there. But um, no bias here things, at all. I mean, we, we crushed them in football every, I mean, the last, so I don't, I don't have okay, a, yeah, I don't shot, have a problem. Shots fired, yeah. Shots fired. Okay. Um, but one of the things that I uh, think was important is they let us know that when we're making policy choices here on behalf of public safety with the pandemic, that taking aggressive action might seem like too much and going too far in the moment. But, Weeks later, it will seem like this was absolutely the thing that needed to happen. And we really took that to heart. And so when people talk about us, you know, taking stronger stances early, that was because we were following the data and the science and the evidence. And I think that has borne fruit that while we were one of the hardest hit states, we did our best to try to get this under some manageable control. And even now, with while some states are skyrocketing, you know, our cases seem to be plateauing after a small uptick. So that's the first thing. The second thing that's really important is we were one of the first states and are still one of the few states that actually tracked our coronavirus infections and COVID-19 deaths based on race and ethnicity mm -hmm. and then reported that data publicly. You know, we, we made that decision in the very beginning. And that's in, in large part thanks to the fact that we have a diverse leadership team. Gretchen Whitman is only the second woman to run this state. I'm the first, I'm the highest ranking black elected official in the history of the state, first black LG. Our chief medical executive is a dynamic black woman named Dr. Jonay Caldone. And we knew that this was important because we know that health disparities exist. We wanted to see what they looked like in this pandemic. And so by measuring that, by being transparent and reporting that, it gave us the space as a state to respond specifically to how this is impacting the black community and impacting communities of color. Because, you know, COVID-19 deaths, the 40% of them were black folks. We only yeah. make up 14% of the population. So by being able to have a specific focus through the coronavirus task force on racial disparities that I chair, we could help our most vulnerable people, which helps our overall response. Talking about this committee that you chair, one of the things that we know is that we'll have a vaccine uh, either in the latter part of this year or first part of next year. 
What's the plan to ensure that black and brown communities in Michigan hit hardest by COVID-19 get the vaccine first? And how will you all lead breakthrough or, or will you lead the breakthrough to deal with these very legitimate trust issues that black communities have in particular with vaccines in general and this vaccine vaccine in particular? Yeah. Vaccines in general, but this vaccine in particular. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been on the forefront of my mind and our minds from from the beginning. Thanks in no small part to the fact that uh, the president is a misinformation just volcano when it comes (laughs) to um, spitting things about that. And and I want to be really clear about something. It's very dangerous to rush the vaccine process. Like, I am concerned about there being political pressure put on these companies that already aligns with a incredible financial incentive to be the first with a vaccine that could lead to the process being shortcut and it not being as safe as it could be. So I am actually concerned about that. But we've been thinking about this a lot. We actually sent a letter to the federal government, Governor Whitmer and I, uh, today that will be uh, uh, to the federal work group that's looking at how the vaccine will be distributed, stressing that we have experience here in Michigan about what it means to deliver this kind of care and treatment to the most vulnerable communities, particularly communities of color that have been hurt. And so we have specific guidance to offer on that. When it comes to these conversations in the community about vaccines and why people don't trust them, because frankly, that mistrust has been earned. It's um, legitimate, very much so. Well, we're, well, yeah, what we're talking about is, you know, this is about ultimately um, what can we do to make sure that we are resilient as possible. We know that we are a resilient people. I mean, there perhaps is no more resilient people <laughs> that you've met uh, um, than Black folks. And so what we tried to stress is we are working on all the systemic issues that lead to poor outcomes. And it's also important that we take the individual actions that are within our control to protect ourselves and protect our families. And so whether it's the, the, the mundane stuff to, of wearing a mask, to making sure you're checking up on your people, to making sure that, you know, when this comes along and we know that it is safe, to make sure all our people get it. Because, look, I've lost 23 people to COVID-19 in my life. Oh, wow. um, and, we've, and we've had people, um, and these are real people, man, and I don't, I don't want to have to, you know, again, eulogize in public my AAU basketball coach or talk about the assistant pastor at the church I grew up in. Um, I instead want to talk about how he was able to have something available to him to help save his life so he could still be there for his family and his community. And so I think we're trying to talk about the value from that perspective and knowing that we, I will do my job to make sure that we are protecting the process of developing the vaccine so it'll be as safe as possible. And you highlighted something that's very important because many times we just look at these numbers and see the numbers rising, but COVID-19 is killing real people and it's in real communities and it's touching lives every single day. Talk to me briefly about the economic recovery that you're spearheading with your task force and Black-owned businesses, because studies suggest that almost half of Black-owned businesses that were open at the beginning of the year have been victims of COVID-19. So what role should states be playing in keeping these Black-owned businesses afloat, especially in a state like Michigan, where Detroit is home to so many Black-owned businesses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to, to, to put it in perspective, um, you know, when I speak to with Black folks around the country, especially some of our elders, they talk about, you know, they came to Detroit and Detroit was the first place where they saw Black people who had money. And, and it was <laughs> yeah, like, but it was a place of, you know, a place of real prosperity and, and achievement and entrepreneurship, as well as people who had good jobs in manufacturing, um, like my family uh, was able to benefit from. So, you know, what we're trying to think about is, you know, in the absence of leadership from the federal government, like the first round of the PPP program was almost like actively unavailable to, to business owners of color, right? Like they didn't even try. It was based on your pre-existing relationship with a bank. When I know a whole lot of black business owners and business owners of color who don't have lending they're relationships unbanked. with banks, they're un- right? They're exactly. Correct, yeah. Exactly. So what we've tried to think about 
is um, through the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, we started things like the Small Business Restart Grant Program, which A, is a grant program, not a loan program. B, is focused on working with economic development organizations and not financial institutions directly to understand what are the businesses that are on the ground that need the most help in the community, and then focus on making sure those resources are distributed to them. But a minimum of 30% of those dollars that we've allocated will be sent to minority-owned, women-owned, and veteran-owned businesses. And that's something we've done structurally. And we think that the federal government can learn something from our program uh, and our process to make sure that that's happening. Like you, You're in a dope role because you are probably the youngest black statewide elected official in the country. I don't know that as a fact, but I'm, I'm assuming so. Almost. Who's, <laughs> Almost. who's young? So, yeah, my, my brother, Mandela Barnes. In oh, Mandela, that's right. I, yeah, I know. Yeah. Mandela's yeah, younger he, than you? He, he is younger than me. I got I got a few gray hairs, but he doesn't have hairs. So he might be high. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love Mandela. Shout out to Mandela Barnes. He's we bring a Mandela on the show too. But what what's it, what are the unique challenges you have for those people who are listening who are who are young politicos? What are what are the unique challenges? I write about it a little bit in my book. But you're young and you're black. What are some of the challenges you faced in, in your experience and being in this role, being young and black? I mean. And progressive. The, the biggest part, I, mean, I appreciate that last one. So, the, the, I mean, the biggest part is, you know, you have to get used to being a walking shatterer of expectations. Of course. And so in a state like Michigan, Michigan's a giant state that people sleep on. And Michigan is the biggest state east of the Mississippi River, right? And so as I go all across Michigan, one, people are somewhat surprised that I will show up consistently in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, being a Black man from Detroit, they don't necessarily expect me to come. Um, But then showing up and being present, I am breaking down stereotypes and misunderstandings that exist uh, about Black folks and just showing that, you know, look, I'm I'm here to to be in in partnership and collaboration and in service to everybody here um, who I've been, you know, humbly elected to serve and that I'm going to prioritize all of our needs and recognize that our needs are very, very interwoven. So, so, that shattering of expectations really with every step you take is something that I have to be very mindful of um, because it also means that, you know, I may be watched a little more closely than my predecessors. Well, it, ain't no, it ain't no May <laughs> in that. You definitely are. The fishbowl. One of the things that I, I, I don't know, maybe you, you've been in these national roles, but now do you feel that fishbowl effect? When I got elected in uh, I was 2006, I was 21. You just felt like there was you had no privacy. There was absolutely nothing. You'd be sitting in restaurants and you would hear the conversations a day later from somebody. <laughs> You're like, why are people listening? Do you feel that fishbowl effect being? Yeah, young? that happens. And you know, I, I think you know my, my wife would appreciate it if it happened a little less. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I, I'm I'm aware of that. And I, I think though, the way I think about it is my presence in this role is our collective presence in this role. Right. And so the reason that I, I do want to kind of embrace the fact that people want to feel a sense of connectedness to this role, because they because who, who heard of the lieutenant governor of Michigan? Before? Like yeah. they had. We didn't yeah. know that that was a position that could be empowered, that could be impactful. Right. And so I want to make sure that people can, you know, feel and touch and know that there is someone who is on their team working on their behalf, working right there alongside them in the dirt to be able to get things done. Uh, I want them to feel that. And, and perhaps. I think it leads to people feeling like they have more access and more connection and that they have more power themselves. They can do more uh, through my um, carrying out this role successfully. So I try to say, you know, it's all of our position. It's all of our jobs. You know, my success is, is grounded in the collective success of communities all across the state. So let's shift gears just a little bit. Talk about 2020. As you, you mentioned earlier, Michigan gave us all like, the whole election 
2016 gave us all heartburn, right? I, I still have PTSD. Mm-hmm. But there was a significant shift uh, in what happened in 2018 versus 2016. Um, yeah. Can you explain that? What what happened? And, and what are you expecting in 2020? Let me tell you the numbers. Trump won Michigan by 10,704 votes. We won Michigan in 2018 by 10 points. The, the most people who ever voted for a uh, you know, governor, lieutenant governor ticket in the history of the state of Michigan voted us in in 2018. What that showed you was, I think, three things. One, the people of Michigan really did step up, I think, to reject uh, Trump and Trumpism and what it represented for our state specifically. You know, we have been, we were, Michiganders were particularly lied to when it came to the, the, the ridiculous promises around you know, manufacturing and the economy and inclusion and, and jobs. Black folks in Michigan were lied to. Like, I mean, there were some specific harms that were done. But also it was a tribute, frankly, to the organizing. Like, you know, we did the work of exactly. doing the door knocking and doing the calls from 2016 and really saying the way we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again is we're going to organize into more power. And so we, you know, did not ignore a single county in Michigan. All 83 counties were touched in the primary to group soil election by Gretchen Whitmer. That's a lot of work. But she put a network in the primary to make sure that everybody knew that we were not going to leave any voter untouched, that everybody was available to us to be part of this Michigan future. And so uh, while we ran on that, we organized on that. And this in the party in Michigan, we didn't stop knocking doors in 2019 either. And you saw the fruits of that because in our primary that was last Tuesday, we had the most votes ever in a primary election in Michigan just last week. And that's because we knocked all those doors, made all those calls in contact in 2019. So when COVID hit, we had to stop the door-to-door program. We were still able to have the conversations and do the organizing work. So it just tells you that you can't stop. You have to continue to engage people and listen to people and let them know that you are here day-to-day, not just election-to-election. And I think that's how you really build power. A lot of press post-2016 was about Black voters in Michigan. Um, and we saw, and particularly in Detroit, and we saw the drop off. There was a big drop off even from 2012 to 2016. But what does Biden need to do to ensure that he has the turnout of a city like Detroit? And it turns out in a way that can catapult him to victory, similar to what you and, uh, and, and Governor Whitmer had. I mean, the first thing you got to do is show up, right? And so well, that's hard in uh, COVID. I mean, what do I, I, I know? I, well, I, I know, but here, but here's what it looks like. I mean, I'm, I am going to be proud of the fact that uh, Biden's last rally was in Detroit yeah. on March 9th. That's true. Um, while I was there with him in Detroit, he, we, I was with him in Flint and in Detroit that day. So Joe Biden chose to show up in black communities uh, in Michigan. I think that's important and people should know that. Joe Biden has frankly shown up for people in Detroit for years. Joe Biden was instrumental in the, you know, the, the auto bailout and making sure our industry survived and like that. But I think going forward, uh, the vice president needs to continue to articulate an agenda for the black community. And I frankly think that he's, um, I, frankly, I frankly think that he's articulated some things that you've never seen um, on the presidential trail before when it comes to the Build Back Better racial equity plan, right. which I think is really incredible when it comes to the part around everything from capitalizing black banks to, you know, college tuition to, to broadband. I mean, it, it's really quite substantive. And I think uh, he should continue to highlight uh, the portions of that because at the end of the day, uh, black voters want to see investment in black futures. You know, we want to see prioritization of our people as, as an important part of the future of this country. And I think certainly our administration has tried to, to do that. I mean, we just announced, for example, the first body that will be dedicated to focusing and elevating black leadership, the Black Leadership Advisory Council in the state of Michigan. We just declared racism a public health crisis so we can unlock the full 
um, power of state government to be able to focus on the harm that has been done by racism and what are the policy practices and programs we can do to right those wrongs in the short, medium, and long term. I mean, these are these are the things you can do when you have power if you articulate a vision and are honest about it. And I think that if the vice president continues to do to do that and, and to, to highlight it, there's a reason why that national ad they just launched is an ad targeting black voters to talk right. about what the potential is. So I think that they are going in the right direction and that I'm proud to support them and I'm going to do everything I can to help make sure that not only he wins, but that he continues um, to invest in these opportunities for the black community. And, I, and, that's the, and that's the most important thing. And what you what you just said is something we harp on all the time on this show, that there's nothing wrong with asking for a black agenda. There's nothing wrong with pushing for ensuring that the ideals and uh, needs of the black community are met. And Joe Biden has risen to that occasion. But I continue to push him to do more while we're in the election process. That's what you do, right? You always push candidates to do more, but still work like hell to ensure that he beats Donald Trump. One last political question, and then I, I know you I know you got to go run a state, but talk to me about Flint, Michigan, and what is the Whitmer administration doing? I know it's something near and dear to your heart, but mm-hmm. we hear about Flint all the time. We hear about the Flint water crisis. We even know that sometimes that people in Flint don't want to talk about this anymore. What is going on with Flint? I know this is a, a long answer, but give me the Cliff Notes version of, of what we need to be doing to, to use our platforms to uplift that and what your administration is doing about it. Let me just ground this first in saying that the reason that the Flint water crisis broke through as an international story, because it was an international human tragedy. Our predecessors made uh, dangerous decisions that led to um, the poisoning of people and the impact on lives for generations. And and there needs to, uh, we we cannot forget that. And I I frankly am glad that people are still um, thinking about this everywhere. Um, what we did, we got to work immediately. You know, look, even on the campaign trail, the first day I spent on the campaign trail uh, was in Flint. I, I didn't even see my kids first day of kindergarten because I was in Flint welcoming Flint parents. School, Don't right? do that hey, again. Look. Don't ever well, do that again. Hey, look, man, I'm telling you, this is the commitment, right? <laughs> but um, in our first budget, we put forward actually $120 million that was dedicated specifically on infrastructure and pipe replacement and also research on how to mitigate the impacts uh, of lead and also PFAS poisoning in Flint, Michigan, and other places. We made a specific and direct investment. We've been working in close partnership with the elected and empowered leadership, not like the emergency manager disempowered leadership that existed previously. And you know, we're 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 happy to report that you know in Flint that project of replacing those pipes is almost completed. And so now what we're working toward is mm. is now that work of building trust. You talked about it earlier, but people have lost trust in systems and in public officials. And you build trust, you rebuild trust by building relationship. And like I said, it's showing up, it's being present. Um, Flint is a city I've spent time in more than any other city except the one I live in, Detroit. Um, It's because we have to make a down payment on those relationships so that we can begin to, you know, not just, you know, have people trust and respect us, but also so we can engage people with their ideas about what what it means to be self-determined going forward and what they can do and invest in. The reason sometimes Flint, people in Flint may not want to talk about water all the time is because they're whole people, right? Like I have right. potential yeah. and futures as, as well. And so I, I want to make sure that we can empower and enable that that's happening in the community. So we, we made that investment in the beginning. We're going to continue to make that investment. And this will be just unlike the last administration, the people of Flint have a friend uh, in ours. And uh, before you get out of here, let me just say thank you to you so much. Are y'all, uh, the Pistons fans, are y'all still mad about uh, Isaiah Thomas being snubbed? 
by Michael yes. Jordan in a dream team? Yes. Oh my God, yes. That was that was man. Are y'all still salty about that? You feel you said that with something in your chest right there. Man, look, first of all, okay, that was probably the greatest basketball tragedy uh in the history of basketball. Since James Naismith had laces on the original basketball, that is the <laughs> So you are telling me that Christian Leitner is not better than Isaiah Thomas, right? Your your laugh denotes your answer to that question. Um, You know, he's the second best point guard of all time. I think we agree with that. I think they even said that on on the last dance. I mean, it's it's Magic Johnson and then Isaiah Thomas. I think that is absolutely true. And you know, Zeke is Zeke will always be royalty and deity uh, uh, here in Detroit. He should, and he is basketball royalty, and he should be. And, And that was that was an example of the fact that pettiness can come even in basketball. And now the now the Pistons are on Jordan brand. How about that? As you, as your guy Morpheus <laughs> said, fate is not without a sense of irony. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, nevertheless, uh, I, I'm always, am, and always will be a diehard Pistons fan. I will go to my grave with my Grant Hill feelers, um, and just you know, my, my team, my team will always be my team. I'm so happy uh, that I can, I can ride my bike to a Pistons game when it's safe. <laughs> downtown yeah, Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish they were in the bubble, but you know, this season was kind of tough. We had yeah, some they injuries. Definitely not, yeah, they definitely but. not in the bubble. I was like, you could probably go see them play today outside in Detroit somewhere. <laughs> my last question, hey, is, is it time to fire Jim Harbaugh? Oh my God, I went to Michigan, man. Look, I think that Coach Harbaugh... You have stated in this interview seven times you went to Michigan. We know. I, well, we I, know. I just want you to know that. <laughs> so, so uh, no, I'm not ready to give up on Coach yet. Um, but you know, the clock is ticking though, man. Um, it's ticking. We got to get over not only the Ohio State hump, which has been tough, uh, but we got to get over this Big Ten hump as well. So, you know, we got to do something. I know. Well, all right, my brother. Thank you so much. I'm going to call you back, man. I want you on the show. This was fun. We'll talk more national politics, but I want people to get a chance to know somebody who I think is one of the most special elected officials we have in the country. And anything I can do to help you, my brother, I'm always there. Thank you for coming on the show, man. God bless you, Bakari. Thank you to you and the listeners. Congratulations on the pod. You're doing great with the platform.